after the year we've all had, we think some forward 2021 planning and the feeling of anticipation is just what is needed for this Christmas morning. And CrimeCon have the perfect gift idea for the true crime enthusiast. Give an unforgettable weekend two whole days of true crime immersive experiences. The weekend will include 50 hours of true crime content where your loved one can see leading true crime experts, meet famous true crime authors, listen to their favorite true crime podcasters, and hear from victims, families, and survivors. The CrimeCon Christmas gift box includes one or two tickets, plus two books from leading true crime publisher Bonnier Books UK, which will keep your loved one entertained until we welcome them to CrimeCon in June. You can bring those books to the show and meet the authors in person to sign them. And there's more. I'll be there all weekend, and if you quote Mens Rea, you can claim 10% off this offer. And the first 10 people who buy tickets with my code Mens Rea will get the lovely bonus of a Mens Rea t-shirt. All you have to do is contact me with proof of purchase. Listen, it has been a tough year, and I know it's hard to make plans and then get your hopes dashed over and over and over again like we have this year. But honestly, looking forward to events like CrimeCon UK 2021 is what's keeping me going. I'm so excited to meet all the other podcasters and personalities from the true crime world, and I'm absolutely dying to meet all of you. So head on down to the show notes, click those links, get your tickets, and we'll see you in 2021. You're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of Aoife Phelan. October of 2012, Aoife Phelan was 30 years old. She came from a large family and had 11 siblings, six sisters and five brothers. Aoife was the fifth eldest. The family home was in Cashel, Ballyroan, just south of the Midlands town of Port Leash, where Aoife's parents Mick, who was 58, and Betty, who was 57, lived with three of her siblings. Aoife had recently told her parents that she was pregnant and was about four months along at that stage and was looking forward to the arrival of her first child. Aoife worked as a live-in childminder for a family who lived on the outskirts of Portleash Town, but she often stayed at her family home over the weekend and had her own room there too. On Thursday, the 25th of October, Aoife finished her work at about a quarter past six and afterwards visited a friend's house in Collier's Lane in Port Leash. She left there at about ten past eight that evening, but that night, Aoife never returned home. Her family became concerned the next morning when they got a call from the family who had expected Aoife that morning to mind their children. They had never been let down by Aoife and were worried when she hadn't arrived back to the house. It looked as if her bed hadn't been slept in either. Aoife's own family agreed that this was totally out of the ordinary for her. 
Aoife's sister Leanne Roach told the Irish Independent that that Friday had been her son's fifth birthday. She said, quote, Aoife is a family person. It was my son's fifth birthday on Friday and Aoife would have sent a text at one minute past midnight to say happy birthday. She's that type of person and is very close to all of us, end quote. And even worse, Aoife wasn't answering her phone at all. That Friday, Aoife was also expected to go to the local post office to collect her social welfare payment, but again, she didn't turn up. Aoife's family felt that she had completely disappeared. Her lack of contact indicated to them that something was terribly wrong. This was all entirely out of character for the happy, bubbly young woman who was so focused on her family and who was so consistent in her routines. With no sign of Aoife at all that Friday, her family contacted Portleash Garda Station and reported her missing. As a Garda investigation into the disappearance began, it was thought that Aoife had initially arranged a lift home on the evening of the 25th, but had then not taken this ride. Her mobile phone records were accessed and Gardie believed that after leaving her friend's house, Eva, or at least her mobile phone, had travelled north towards Mount Melek and away from her home. There, the phone then turned off or went dead at around 9pm that night. Aoife's family started a social media campaign appealing for information regarding their sister's whereabouts and began posting flyers in the local area and along Collier's Lane where Eva had last been seen appealing for information. On October 29th, Gardy issued a formal appeal for information regarding her disappearance. They described Eva as 5 foot 7 inches in height, of slim build with long blonde hair and blue eyes. When she was last seen, Eva had been wearing jeans and a knit jumper. Police said they were treating the matter seriously and that they were anxious about her welfare, but were also keeping an open mind as to the reason behind Aoife's disappearance. A senior Garda source told the Irish Independent that they were pursuing a number of lines of inquiry and that various searches were being carried out at the time, but the source declined to say anything further. A search of the area around Collier's Lane was planned to take place on the 29th, but the family had called it off. The press reported that it was understood that the family had been advised against the search taking place. The following morning, Tuesday the 30th, Garda sources said it was their intention to access and review Aoife's full mobile phone records, as well as her bank account. One member of the Gardaí on the investigating team said, quote, We obviously are very concerned, but as time goes on, we are more concerned. Everything we can do is being done, end quote. Later in the day, Betty Phelan made a public plea for Aoife to return home. Mrs. Phelan said, quote, She's a very bubbly person and it's totally out of character for Aoife not to have been in contact with some of her family. So we are very, very concerned at the moment. Aoife, if you're out there somewhere, please contact us, end quote. Betty Phelan also spoke about the devastation and state of worry that Eva's family were experiencing, saying, quote, We are all over the place at the moment. We aren't sleeping. We are not eating. It's just unreal. You don't think it's going to hit your door, you know. You read about these things in the paper and your heart goes out to the families, but at the same time, you don't think it's going to happen to you. 
we're all just in limbo at the moment, end quote. A Garda spokesperson, Superintendent Yvonne London, spoke during a press conference and said that they too were concerned about Aoife's welfare. She confirmed that Gardi were following a number of lines of inquiry and that there were various searches ongoing for the missing woman. Gardi had also been in contact with people who had come forward with information regarding Aoife's disappearance. On the 31st, the Irish Independent reported that the Gardi had no indication whatsoever that Aoife Phelan had been harmed by anyone, and she was described as, quote, highly unlikely to have been the victim of foul play. However, Gardi said that they were very concerned. One source said, quote, we're told she has never done anything like this before and yet she appears to have just vanished, end quote. Her family reported to Gardi that Eva had seemed happy and that nothing out of the ordinary had occurred before she went missing. She had displayed no signs of distress. The Evening Herald revealed that Miss Phelan had been in a brief relationship with a local man, but they reported that this man had left the country on a prearranged trip to New York just before Aoife's disappearance, and he'd not yet returned from abroad. It was understood that by this point, there had been contact made between him and the local guardee investigating Aoife's disappearance, but he was not suspected of any wrongdoing in the case. He told Gardee that he had not seen Aoife recently. The Herald went on to say that it was understood that this man had not known Aoife very well. A small, man-made pond between housing estates on the outskirts of Port Leash was searched by Garda diver teams from the water unit on the 31st of October. Local kids stood by watching as the divers spent several hours combing the bottom of the ornamental lake. The officers then spent time wading through thick reeds along the water's edge and in a smaller body of water adjoining the pond. Gurdy told the media that the search at the pond was not carried out on foot of any information that had been gathered by the investigating team. Rather, it was a routine probe carried out to exclude the area from their inquiries. It was also revealed shortly before Eva had left her friends that night, she had received a text and then said she had to go. Without her phone, though, there was no way to know the content of that text. But because Gardie had her phone records by that stage, they had been able to identify the number that the text had been sent from. There were also searches around Mount Melek where Aoife's phone had last been located, but they turned up nothing. A week after Aoife went missing, her family held a candlelit vigil at Collier's View, near to where she was last seen. They were joined there by up to 200 friends, neighbours and family members. Aoife's siblings and parents carried roses and pictures of the missing woman, and Betty Phelan clasped rosary beads and led the group in prayer. Dara, Aoife's brother, told those gathered that they hoped the vigil might jog someone's memory of the week before and called on anyone who remembered anything to contact Portleash Garda Station. Aoife's mother Betty once again made an impassioned plea, saying, quote, Aoife, we will be strong as a family and we will bring you home. We love you, Aoife, so come home. End quote. Meanwhile, Gardi were conducting door-to-door inquiries and reviewing CCTV footage from the area in the hopes of tracing Eva's last movements that night, after she'd left her friends. 
Guarded checkpoints were set up in the area to ask people if they recalled seeing the woman the week before, and they handed out flyers to motorists as well as passing pedestrians. Gardy confirmed that there had been no activity on either Aoife's phone or on her bank accounts in the previous week. Then, finally, on Monday the 5th of November, an agonising 12 days after Aoife had failed to return home, a 24-year-old local man was detained in relation to the case. He was held under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act and brought to Portleash Garda Station for questioning. But he was released the next night. Yet in the following days, Gardy upgraded the investigation to that of a murder inquiry and began searching various sites around Portleash Town as possible dump sites for Aoife's body. The divers were once again called in to search a stretch of the River Barrow, which ran below a motorway overpass. It was thought that it was possible Aoife's body had been dumped from the bridge into the river below. They began their work on Tuesday the 6th of November, only stopping when darkness fell and resuming the search the following morning. On the same day, after reportedly receiving a tip about suspicious activity, Gardy also began to search a yard at the back of a house on the outskirts of Portleash Town, not far from the Phelan's family home. Forensic experts conducted the search with the aid of a mini-digger and shovels and removed sand and rubble from the cluttered haulage yard behind a white bungalow on the Timahoe Road. This search stretched into the 7th of November and concluded that day when it was confirmed by Gardy that Aoife Phelan's body had been found at the back of the house. On the 7th of November, a blue tarpaulin tent was erected in the backyard of the house on the Timahoe Road and Gardy were seen climbing down a stepladder into an excavated area of the garden to reach the remains. Eva's body was removed from the site at around 3pm and other evidence was also taken away, clothes and books. A utility vehicle was searched and seized and there were reports that Eva's phone and handbag had been discovered in the vehicle. That evening, the 24-year-old man who had previously been questioned by the guardie was rearrested and brought back to Portleash Garda Station. Gardy made a further statement to the press with Superintendent David Taylor saying, quote, We have had exceptional help from the public and I would like to take this opportunity to thank the public for their immense help in this investigation. Without them, we would not have been able to progress the investigation. End quote. Local people spoke to Louise Hogan, writing for the Irish Independent, and told her that the man being held in relation to the case was a quiet young man, who was described as well-respected and who came from a nice family. The fact he was being questioned in relation to the case was a shock, they said. Aoife's body was taken to Tullamore General Hospital, where a post-mortem was carried out by Professor Mary Cassidy, and the search at the River Barrow site was called off. A local priest, Father Gerard Ahern, told reporters that the area had a very sombre air to it in the wake of the discovery of Miss Phelan's body. He continued, quote, But at least a body has been found. While it's not what we would have hoped for, 
It's some comfort to the family that they will have Eva home. They have shown great strength and courage in the face of this. End quote. Preliminary results of the autopsy on Aoife Phelan's body indicated she had been badly beaten, which had led to her death. Her body had then been put into a barrel and buried amid rubbish and rubble in the haulage yard adjacent to the house at Capelet. Crime scene investigators continued a fingertip search of the site and footage from a CCTV camera that monitored the yard was also collected by Gardie for review. Friends of Aoife and the extended Phelan family visited the site where her body had been found and left floral tributes in Aoife's memory, while visitors made their way to the Phelan home to pass on their condolences and to try and provide some comfort to the family at a time of great grief. The 24-year-old man continued to be held in relation to the murder. He and his family lived in the house adjacent to the site where Aoife's body had been found, and the man was reported to have been a lorry driver. It was also believed that he had a brief relationship with Aoife in the period before her death. A vigil service to mark two weeks since Aoife's disappearance had been planned to take place in St. Patrick's Church, Ballyrone. The service went ahead in Aoife's memory, though her immediate family chose not to attend so soon after the confirmation of their loss. The man held in Garda custody was charged with the murder of Aoife Phelan minutes before midnight on the 8th of November. The following morning he was brought to a special sitting of the district court at Port Leash and was named as Robert Corbett. On his arrival at court, Corbett, who was striking for his mass of curly red hair, was met by a crowd of 60 people who had gathered outside the courthouse. After he was formally charged with murder, Mr Corbett shook his head no, and as he left the court, the crowd jeered and yelled at him, calling him a scumbag. Robert Corbett was remanded in custody to Cloverhill Prison, where he would be seen by mental health professionals on foot of a request by Corbett's solicitor for assessment. Press in the court noted that the 24-year-old had appeared dazed and shaken during the brief four-minute court appearance. Aoife's family issued a statement through their parish priest, thanking the Gardee for their efforts and asking for privacy. There was a shocking and sad revelation in the press regarding Aoife's post-mortem examination. The chief state pathologist confirmed that Aoife had suffered injuries to her head and neck and was not pregnant at the time of her death. The disclosure left people wondering what had been going on in Aoife's life which had led her to tell people she was expecting. But of course, there was now no way to get those answers. Aoife's funeral was held the following day after she was waked in her family home. In the village, all the shops and businesses were closed the day of the funeral. Cars lined the roads through Ballyrone in both directions. Over a thousand people attended the Requiem Mass at the small church at Ballyrone. Most stood outside as the church could not accommodate such numbers. Aoife's coffin was carried by her five brothers and the procession music was played by the local brass band. Her brother Dara told the congregation, quote, Aoife's bubbly personality brought so much joy and happiness to her family and friends near and far. 
her smile was and forever shall be in our hearts, end quote. While giving his homily, the parish priest, Father Gerard Ahern, said, quote, that someone should die in the circumstances that Aoife's life was taken goes beyond human understanding. We shouldn't be here today, but that is the reality we are confronted with, end quote. Aoife was then buried in the nearby St. Patrick's Cemetery. After the service, the parish priest once again spoke to the press on behalf of the Phelan family. Father Gerard Ahern said the family were, quote, overwhelmed with the support they received. People came from all over the country, people they didn't even know, to share their experience, end quote. Robert Corbett appeared once again before the district court in Cloverhill Prison on the 15th of November, this time looking rather different with his striking curls cut short. His barrister, Colm Hennessy, informed Judge Grania Malone that they were consenting to remand for a further four weeks. The accused's legal team also made an application for free legal aid, telling the court that Corbett's haulage business was in the process of being wound up. Gardy had no objection to this and legal aid was granted. At his next appearance before the district court in Cloverhill Prison on the 13th of December, Robert Corbett's barrister, Colm Hennessy, again consented to a further period of four weeks in custody while awaiting the delivery of the Book of Evidence by Gardee. By March of 2013, Gardee had the book completed and it was served on Robert Corbett and his legal team in court on the 27th of that month in Clover Hill. An order was then made by Judge Grania Malone sending Corbett forward for trial during the next term of the Central Criminal Court. It would be over a year before Robert Corbett would appear in that court to face the charge of murder against him. On the 12th of May 2014, Corbett was arraigned at the Criminal Courts of Justice. He pleaded not guilty to the charge of murder, but admitted instead that he was guilty of manslaughter. This plea was not accepted by the Director of Public Prosecutions. The following day, the trial opened before Mr. Justice Garrett Sheehan and a jury of three women and nine men. Ms. Isabel Kennedy, senior counsel, was acting on behalf of the state and Connor DeValley, senior counsel, was appearing for the defendant in the case. Ms. Kennedy told the jury that they would hear evidence that the defendant and Aoife Phelan had known one another and were romantically involved to some degree. It was the state's case that on the night she was last seen, Aoife had been collected by Corbett from her friend's house in Port Leash. They had then gone to Corbett's house, where they argued about their relationship. Corbett had then intentionally killed Aoife by repeatedly striking her and choking her, because he thought she was pregnant and was looking to formalise their relationship with one another. After that, he had covered up his crime by burying Aoife's body in the yard adjacent to his house. Garda Louise Young from Portleash Station gave evidence and said that on the 26th of October, Aoife's father, Michael, had called to the station and made a report that Aoife was missing. Garda Young also told the court that Miss Phelan's mobile phone had later been recovered from a black Toyota Land Cruiser, which belonged to the accused. Michael Phelan then took the stand. He confirmed that Aoife had told him and the rest of the family that she was pregnant before her death, 
but said she'd been happy about it and there had been no fuss. Paul Yates, a friend of Aoife's, one of whom she'd been visiting the night she was last seen, confirmed that it was evident to him that Aoife had been going off to meet the accused when she left his house that night. Mr Bates also described for the court how he and Aoife had met the accused at a nightclub in Port Leash on the 13th of June 2012. Then Detective Garda Eddie Brennan described an interview he had had with the defendant. Corbett had said at this time that he did not know Aoife had said she was pregnant, but told Gardy that she was very family-orientated. Corbett did say he thought he recalled Aoife mentioning being a day or two late in a text message, but he was very insistent that he had not had sex with Aoife. He had responded to the text by asking who the father was. Corbett made it clear to the detective that he was definite he hadn't had full intercourse with Aoife and there was no way he was the father of her child. In his statement made to Detective Sergeant Jared Mahoney on the 4th of November, the defendant had described meeting Ms. Phelan. He had got chatting to her while he was at the bar buying shots and offered her one. They swapped numbers and started texting with one another and Aoife had visited his house where they had engaged in oral sex. It was after this that Aoife had texted to tell him that her period was late, but Corbett said in this statement, quote, It didn't make sense to me. I never had penetrative sex with her. End quote. The accused said he'd told Eva he was just out of a relationship and wasn't ready to go any further. The statement continued, outlining how in the month of September, Ms. Phelan had begun to ask him about his plans for the future and relationships and what he thought about a possible future for them together. Corbett told Gardy he had explained to Aoife that he wasn't looking for a relationship, and he was mindful of the age difference between the two of them. He said he was only 23 and was not looking to settle down. According to Corbett, Aoife had responded that he would make a great father. The following day, the 14th of May, Gardy gave evidence in relation to the discovery of Aoife Phelan's body. Sergeant Liam Mulhall told the court that on the 6th of November, he had noted that it appeared something had been placed in the ground near to the accused man's home. There was a fresh disturbance of gravel. A small digger was brought in to excavate the area and quickly after work began, Gardy came across items that looked as if they had recently been put there, such as broken blocks, tyres, parts of lorries, bottles and cans and old torn clothing. As digging continued the following day and further progress was made, Gardy came upon a piece of plywood which had been covered in gravel. There was an effort to remove the piece of half-inch thick wood and the digger was used to lift it from the hole. As this happened, the motion disturbed an oil barrel below the piece of plywood and the lid for this barrel came off. Gardy could clearly see the metal barrel beneath at this point, and Sergeant Mulhall said that the inside of the barrel appeared red. When he got closer to look inside properly, he observed a lady's shoe and jeans, as well as black plastic. He told the court that it was then he noticed a human leg there. Then Betty Phelan gave her evidence. She said that Aoife had told her about being pregnant and that her daughter had been very happy about this. 
Betty had told her that her room was there for her and that she could continue to stay with them. Mrs. Phelan said that Aoife didn't tell her much about her day-to-day life, nor did the 30-year-old talk much about what her work was like for the various families she'd acted as childminder for. Betty said, quote, Any place she worked, she never discussed anything about what would have happened in those houses, end quote. Betty went on to recall for the court how she had first become concerned when Aoife failed to contact her. It was out of character for Aoife not to be in touch. She'd rang her daughter, but the call had gone straight to voicemail. The jury then heard from another officer based in Portleash Garda Station, Adele Hanley. She gave evidence regarding a complaint that Eva had made to Gardee in 2005, where the deceased woman had alleged she'd been sexually assaulted. Detective Garda Hanley said that Eva had been so upset by the incident that she had, quote, done an act of self-harm as a result of it. On the third day of the trial, the jury were shown Aoife Phelan's phone records and the contents of a WhatsApp message folder, which had been deleted but recovered from Mr. Corbett's phone. There were hundreds of messages between the two, with 260 messages from the day before Aoife went missing alone. Corbett had texted Aoife to tell her he was going to be away in London that weekend, as he was attending a christening. The mother of the child was raising the baby alone, in response to this, Aoife had said, quote, fair play to her. Sure, I know I can do this by myself as well. I suppose I have to anyway. You're never going to be around, end quote. She told him that she better get his priorities straight. Corbett had answered her back at that point, saying he'd been trying to get together as much money as possible in preparation for the arrival of a baby that Aoife had indicated was due in less than eight months. They also had a discussion about possible baby names. Corbett had suggested Roisin if the baby was to be a girl. The final text conversation between Eva and the accused included numerous intimate and sexual references. They had made arrangements to meet on the night of the 25th. The last message in the record was one which said Corbett would be there in a minute, sent presumably just before he picked Eva up that night. Aoife's internet search history was also shown to the jury that day, which showed she had accessed mainly pages to do with pregnancy. The nine men and three women were also informed that Mr. Corbett had indeed been out of the country the first weekend Aoife was missing, but he had in fact flown to New York in order to visit his ex-girlfriend. On Thursday, May 15th, Detective Sergeant Brian Hanley went through the details of a witness statement given by Robert Corbett on the 5th of November. He had told Gardy that he and Ms. Phelan had met in a nightclub in Port Leash in June of 2012 and had started texting one another and fooling around, but they had never had sex. Sometime after, Aoife had told him that her period was late. Corbett said that Aoife wanted a relationship with him, but he hadn't felt the same way. Initially, Corbett had denied any involvement in Aoife's disappearance, but Detective Sergeant Hanley said that this had changed once Aoife's phone records were presented to the accused, showing that the two had been in contact the day she went missing. In this statement, Corbett admitted to having collected Aoife from her friend's house the evening she went missing. He said that Aoife wasn't his girlfriend and described her rather as a friend with complications. 
Corbett said that that night he had driven the two of them towards his house and they'd ended up having an argument about their relationship. Corbett said Aoife was being quote-unquote pushy and was giving him grief about their relationship and his avoidance of making arrangements to meet up with her. Corbett said Aoife was screaming at him. Then Corbett said he'd snapped. He'd pulled over at a roundabout and hit Aoife repeatedly, saying, quote, I just snapped. When I came round, she was unconscious, end quote. He admitted to having hit her in the side of the head with his fist four or five times. Corbett told the Garda during the interview that he could, quote, pack a punch when I'm angry, end quote. Corbett said he had been staring at the windshield in the car and when he looked up, Aoife was slumped over and not moving. He then told the Garda that he'd driven up and down the road a few times before returning home. There, he'd gone into the kitchen and got two black sacks and while in the house, Corbett said his mother had been there. He said he'd nearly broke down in tears when he saw his mum in the kitchen but had managed to hold himself together. Corbett said he'd gone back to his jeep and emptied out the boot, leaving Miss Phelan's body in the car and began driving towards Dublin. He told Detective Hanley that he'd thought Aoife would eventually come to and had checked her pulse twice. The only thing going through his mind at that time, he said, was, quote, I need to get rid of her, end quote. Corbett described for Gardie how he had stopped at a bridge on the M7 and had unbelted Aoife and lifted her out of the car. The defendant had said he'd noticed that there was blood coming from her ear. He'd then put Aoife's body over the railings, dropping her into the river below. He'd heard the splash, but he didn't look over the railings to see. Corbett concluded this statement by saying, quote, I feel sorry about the whole thing and ashamed, end quote. This statement had prompted the guard a search of the river Barrow. Corbett had also said he was sceptical about Aoife's pregnancy, saying he'd seen no proof. But Corbett told Gardie that when he'd questioned her, Aoife had said that if he left, she'd quote-unquote ruin him. On cross-examination by defence counsel Connor DeValley, Detective Sergeant Hanley agreed that this story had been a quote, voyage of fiction, end quote, that the defendant had led the Gardie on a wild goose chase in the course of this statement and had diverted police attention away from his family home. Then. Garda Eamon O'Connell described having worked the mini-digger at the site where Aoife's body had been discovered. He told the court that he had dug down through layers of rubble, concrete and hardcore filling until he reached a layer of rubbish, six to eight feet below ground level. Beneath that was various other rubbish and below that again was the oil drum. When the top came off, he saw clothing that matched what Aoife Phelan had been reported as wearing when she was last seen. And so then Garda O'Connell notified his sergeant, who was at the search of the River Barrow. A compilation of CCTV footage was shown to the court with Garda Paul Wilson describing the locations and the people caught on tape. The defendant was shown leaving his yard in his jeep at about 8pm on the 25th, and a similar-looking vehicle was captured by cameras passing Collier's Lane about 15 minutes later. Footage from the haulage yard the following morning showed a van reversing into the area where Miss Phelan's body was recovered. As it pulled back into frame, its rear doors were open, implying that the contents of the van 
had been removed. The court heard that Mr. Corbett had made a number of purchases that morning in Port Leash. He had been to a hardware store at around 10am and had continued on to the credit union. Then he went into Argos and then into another hardware shop before driving back to his home in Capillet. At 10.36am in the yard, a truck with what appeared to be a load full of gravel was shown backing into the yard, which was unloaded in the area where Aoife's body was found. Later in the afternoon at 3.15pm, a forklift with building material appeared on the CCTV and deposited various building materials in the same place, just slightly out of view of the cameras. On the opening day of the second week of the trial, on the 19th of May, Detective Sergeant Colm Riley, a ballistics expert from the Garda Technical Bureau, told the court he had attended the post-mortem examination of the body of Aoife Phelan and had recovered two black plastic bags and cable ties from her body. He then showed these to the court. A fingerprint expert, Detective James Cunningham, then showed the jury photographs of a palm print taken from the accused and one recovered from one of the plastic bags. He said he had no doubt whatever that the prints were a match. The jury also heard further extracts from the defendant's interviews with Gardee. After Aoife's body was discovered, Corbett had apologised to Gardee for lying to them by telling them to search the river and said he had done this to try and protect the family home. This time, Corbett said he and Aoife had argued in his car while it was parked in a garage on his property. Corbett told the Gardee during the interview, quote, She wanted a relationship and I didn't. If I didn't agree, she said she'd ruin my life, which, as I sit here, is ironic, end quote. The accused described again how he had snapped and said he had hit Aoife a few times before catching her around the neck with his arm. Corbett described the two of them falling to the ground then and said he'd seen some blood come from Aoife's eye. He held her there until she stopped moving. Then, the 23-year-old admitted he'd been trying to kill the woman. When asked what he thought the end result of this action on his part would be, Corbett responded, death. Later, he was asked why Aoife had died and Corbett responded simply, quote, I strangled her, end quote. The defendant had told Gardie that panic had begun to set in and he decided to hide Aoife's body. He'd put a black sack around her head and secured it with cable ties. When asked why he'd done this, Corbett said it was because he wasn't sure that Eva had been dead and he wanted to make sure. He had had a fear that she would somehow come back to life. Then he'd put her into the barrel, sealed it and left it in the garage overnight. Corbett mopped up blood and then washed his hands. Later that night he drove to Dublin to collect a friend. When he got home, Robert Corbett watched television and then went to bed. The following morning, he had buried the barrel containing Aoife's body in a pit in the yard. Detective Garda Connor Murphy had interviewed the accused on the 8th of November, which gave further insight into what had gone on between Aoife and Corbett the night she was killed. Corbett told Garda Murphy that he had been looking forward to their meeting that evening, that he had wanted to sort things out and that Aoife seemed to be in good form, but when he told her he was going to New York, and he'd been seeing his ex, 
Corbett said Aoife, quote-unquote, flipped out. His plan had been to sort things out with Aoife so that he could tell his ex where he stood when he visited. The Garda had asked if Corbett saw Aoife as an obstacle and Corbett said yes, but it was nothing that couldn't be sorted out. Garda Murphy asked, quote, the pregnancy was going to scupper it with the love of your life. Is that why you killed Aoife? End quote. Corbett had responded yes. The following day on the 20th of May, Professor Mary Cassidy took the stand. She told the jury how she had called out to the scene near to Sheffield Cross and had viewed the excavations where the metal barrel had been found. Professor Cassidy described how Aoife's head and shoulders had been covered with the black plastic bags. Two sturdy cable ties had been pulled tight around the woman's neck. During the post-mortem, the pathologist had observed prominent signs of asphyxia. Blood was present in Aoife's nose and ears and there were pinpoint hemorrhages in her eyes and mouth. Along with this, Ms. Phelan's hyoid bone and thyroid cartilage were fractured. There was also evidence of assault on the body, which Professor Cassidy concluded were the result of a number of slaps or punches about the head. The pathologist told the court that it was her opinion that Eva had been assaulted and then strangled, and there was no evidence of her having struggled in the barrel. Professor Cassidy said that by the time Eva had been put there, she was either dead or heavily unconscious. One thing Mary Cassidy did not find was any evidence that Aoife Phelan was pregnant at the time of her death, or that she had ever been pregnant. Aoife's cause of death was determined to be strangulation, with blunt force trauma, as a contributory fact. The next morning, Robert Corbett took to the stand to give evidence in his own defence. It was the defence's position that the accused had been provoked, experiencing a sudden and complete loss of control because of the argument with Aoife. Robert Corbett said that the argument had started while they sat in his car in the garage when he questioned her about being pregnant. At the implication that she had been lying, Aoife got angry and asked him who did he think he was to be asking such questions. Corbett continued, quote, I said I was entitled to ask questions like this if I was the so-called father, end quote. After this, Corbett said Aoife had started to make threats against him and his business, which his late father had built up. He told the court he was actually afraid and then saw red, quote, it was like a protective instinct went off in me to hear someone threaten everything you worked for, everything you are. I just snapped, end quote. After this, he had put his arm around Aoife's neck. He had let go and hit her on the head at one stage, but then went back to keeping the grip around her neck because he said he couldn't stop. He said, quote, it felt like an out-of-body experience. It was a loss of self-control. I just couldn't stop. End quote. He admitted that he had applied quite a lot of pressure using both hands to increase the force on Miss Phelan's neck and told the court he weighed about 18 and a half stone at the time. Corbett said he had covered Aoife's head with plastic bags because he couldn't look at her anymore. He said he had wanted to run into the house and get his mother or brother to ask for help, 
but found he wasn't able to do this. He said he couldn't believe what had just happened. Then Corbett had panicked and put Aoife's body into the barrel. The next morning he had rolled it into a pit that was present on his property and asked two friends to fill the hole in for him. They had no idea what they'd been assisting him with. Corbett had then flown to New York as planned that weekend. On his second day of testimony, Robert Corbett faced cross-examination by the prosecution. He told Isabel Kennedy that he had been suicidal during his interviews with the Gardee, but Ms. Kennedy noted that the defendant had been deemed fit to be interviewed by a doctor who had visited him at Portleash Garda Station. The prosecuting counsel put it to Corbett that he had not been provoked that night, but he insisted that Aoife's threats to him had caused him to snap. To that, Ms. Kennedy responded, quote, You did not lose self-control. Your actions were of a person acting in a calculated way, end quote. But Corbett denied this. Corbett told the court that during his Garda interviews, he would have said anything to have them over and done with, and this was why he had said that Aoife Phelan had become a barrier to him when he wanted to get back together with his ex. The defendant said his, quote, head was fried in those interviews and I would have agreed with anything to get them finished, end quote. And then the case was over. Isabel Kennedy delivered the closing statement for the prosecution. She said that there was no provocation in this case and argued that Mr. Corbett had acted in a calculated way. The defendant was able to recall what he had done to Aoife in detail. Ms. Kennedy outlined the series of actions taken by Robert Corbett that night. The attack, Corbett striking Aoife and resuming his act of strangulation, retrieving the black bags and cable ties, ensuring that Aoife was dead, and placing Aoife into the barrel. Ms. Kennedy said, quote, This was a man entirely in control. His acts were deliberate and calculated. The prosecution has proved to you that this man is guilty of murder. End quote. In his closing argument, Connor DeValley, senior counsel, told the jurors they must ask themselves if it was reasonably possible that his client had totally lost self-control. If they thought that this might be the case, then they could deliver a verdict of manslaughter. He asked them to put aside the, quote, cowardly, self-serving and mealy-mouthed actions, end quote, of his client after his contact with Gardy began and Corbett's reluctance to be forthcoming with the truth. Mr. Duvalli also asked the nine men and three women to ignore the desecration of Aoife's body and the quote-unquote ugly way Corbett had covered up his crime. He said they should focus rather on the moments around the time that Aoife was killed. The barrister argued that his client had lost control in that moment due to being threatened and provoked by Aoife Phelan. Mr. Justice Garrett Sheehan gave his instructions to the jury, who then retired to begin deliberations. They stayed behind closed doors for an hour and a half before being sent home for the evening. They resumed their deliberations on the morning of Friday the 23rd of May. The jury foreman asked Mr. Justice Sheehan to repeat the definitions for the terms of murder, manslaughter and provocation. The judge once again explained the elements of murder, the actus reus, the guilty act, and the mens rea, the guilty mind. The actual act was admitted in this case. 
It was up to the jury to decide whether the defendant had intended to cause death or serious harm, and then to decide whether, if given what they knew of the defendant and his circumstances, Corbett had been so provoked by Eva's threats that this had caused him to be overcome by a sudden, unforeseen onset of passion that had deprived him in that moment of his self-control. With that, the jury were sent back out, and after a total of four and a half hours, the jury returned with a majority verdict of 10 to 2. They'd found Robert Corbett guilty of the murder of Aoife Phelan. As the verdict was read out, Corbett put his head in his hands. Reporters in Court 19 on the sixth floor of the Criminal Courts of Justice building noted that he appeared to become emotional. Then, Aoife's brother Dara delivered a victim impact statement on behalf of Aoife's family, with each member writing their thoughts down to be read before the court. Dara spoke on his own behalf first, saying that he would never forget his mother and father sobbing and falling into each other's arms after his mother had to identify Aoife. Betty had said to Michael, quote, We have our angel back, end quote. Dara also described how he had helped to dig his little sister's grave, a task, he told the court, that it had never crossed his mind he might have to do. Trevor Phelan said he had never got to say goodbye to Aoife. Donna said that the nearly two weeks her sister was missing was like living in a nightmare and that it was the cruelest, most painful thing any sister could experience. Michael Anthony Phelan recalled driving all over the area looking for Aoife while she was missing. He described the sense of relief when she was found, but said he still visited her grave every day. Leanne said Aoife was the best sister a person could ask for. Lavina said in the statement that tears, sleepless nights and memories were all she had left of Aoife now. She had made a 27-hour journey home from Australia when Aoife was missing, and she said that the day Aoife was brought home was the saddest of her life. Shona Phelan told the court that she had tried to sing one of Aoife's favourite songs at her funeral, but she couldn't. She had to stop. Now, every time Shona heard it, she sobbed uncontrollably. Shalane said that Aoife would always be in her prayers. Nicola Phelan, who had also travelled home from Australia when the search for Aoife was ongoing, said that the closed coffin had been the hardest thing. Aoife's brother Bradley said that he had started to suffer from anxiety attacks since his sister's death. He said he would never forget the sadness he felt as he had carried her coffin. He was only 19. Dale, the youngest brother, said he was only 16 when Aoife had died. He noted that compassion was a word often used in relation to defendants, but wondered where compassion was when his sister had been killed, or through the 13 days he and his family had suffered when Aoife was missing. Betty Phelan said her daughter Aoife had been beautiful and vibrant, but when she went to the hospital to identify her body, she barely recognised her. Aoife's face was black and blue and they'd had to have a closed casket at the funeral. Betty went on to say that the 13 days Aoife was missing had been the darkest days of her life. She concluded by thanking Aoife for her 30 years of life. Michael Phelan said that driving through Sheffield Cross, which he had to do often, was now very painful for him. His heart raced and his legs shook as he passed through the area 
where he knew his daughter had been murdered. That completed the victim impact statement on behalf of the Phelan family, and Dara then thanked the court for allowing the family to express their pain and loss. Then Robert Corbett was handed down the mandatory life sentence by Mr Justice Garrett Sheehan. As the Phelan family left the court, they made no comment to the press. Their ordeal was finally over, but their grieving never would be. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Shelby Weber, Shannon McKenzie, Lauren Yega, Peggy LePage and Brian Garland. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. For ad-free and bonus episodes, head to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod and help a girl out. And don't forget about the 15% discount for annual subscriptions. Snag yourself some of that nifty mensrea merch at bit.ly forward slash merch. I'm loving seeing all these t-shirts out in the wild, so if you want one for yourself, check it out. And don't forget to tag me on all the socials. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week. June's Journey, Wild Natural Deodorant, and BetterHelp. Supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check out all their details in the show notes. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin McLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin McLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Miss Hyoid Boyne, Hyoid Boyne, Hyoid Bone, Hyoid, Hyoid Bone, Hyoid Hoid. Hyoid, bone, and thyroid. The murder of Jacqueline de Wallaby is a tragedy that has puzzled and polarized the minds of those who know it. Over the past six months, we've extensively investigated this case, trawling through files, trial transcripts, and archives, and have been conducting interviews with the people who've lived through it. It was a sensational startling fact that a seven-year-old little girl had shown up missing from a suburban home. Something like that happening would have never crossed our parents' minds. The notion that a stranger can slip into a child's bedroom in the middle of the night, completely undetected, is surely a notion that every single parent on this earth fears. But what's even more lamentable is knowing that a child killer is roaming the street. And even more chilling, they could be someone you know. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window.